We've been following, <clears throat> excuse me, the writer. We've been following the writer to the Hebrews uh, in his argument that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek uh, brought out in earlier chapter, chapter 7, and is also what we called last week a theophany. It is a, a, actually a pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews has been arguing to his reading audience that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior or greater than Aaron's. And he started out in uh, the fourth chapter of, of chapter, I'm sorry, the fourth verse of chapter 7, when he said that uh, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater because Aaron uh, had paid tithe to Melchizedek because Aaron was in the loins of Abraham. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 19, uh, Aaron's priesthood made nothing perfect. Verse 19 of chapter 7 says, for the law made nothing perfect. Um, he pointed out later in verses 22 through 28 of chapter 7 that Aaron's priesthood was filled with priests, men who died. And that Melchizedek's priesthood was one that was to go on forever, being that it was likened unto Christ who lives forever. And then he finally plants his theological flag, if you will, opens up full throttle here in chapter 8, verse 1, and says to his reading audience, this is the main point of the thing that we're saying. That the priesthood of Aaron, the Arianic priesthood, serves as a shadow. It was all something that was looking forward. It was like that sundial that casts a shadow and tells you what time it is. The entire priesthood, uh, Arianic priesthood, and that system was casting a shadow forward to the person and the work of Christ who is the reality. And so therefore, as we read in verse 6, it says, speaking of Christ, that he, meaning Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he also is mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. And the author is going to define what he means by better. He's going to, in the next handful of verses, verses 7 on through 13, he's going to define what he uh, is trying to describe as better very clearly. But first, what is a covenant? We're dealing with that subject now. We've moved from the priesthood to the subject of a covenant. What is a covenant? Webster's Dictionary defines a covenant in this way. It says that it is a, usually a formal and solemn and binding agreement. And secondly, a written agreement or promise usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of an action. It is a binding agreement, a covenant, and it is usually between a binding between two parties 
that relates to some action, a performance of an action. And so here, we're now introduced in the book of Hebrews to the, the main point that the author is making is that there is a, a, a better covenant as he was trying to communicate to the Hebrews who had begun to slip away from simple faith in Christ alone for eternal and permanent salvation. In the Bible, there are uh, eight covenants, and uh, we have them listed for you up there. There is uh, the covenant made in Eden when God gave to uh, Adam and Eve the, the land in which we call that the uh, Edenic covenant. There is the uh, covenant he made with Abraham, I'm sorry, with Adam, I mean, in Genesis 3.15, we call that the Adamic covenant. Of course, he made a covenant with Noah as well in Genesis 9.16 that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. We talked as we got into the book of Hebrews about his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12.2, he made a covenant with Abraham. It's called uh, the Abrahamic covenant. He made, of course, a covenant with Moses in Exodus 9, uh, 19, 5. One that I found very interesting. Uh, he made a covenant with the land of Israel, or rather to the Israeli people, about the land in which he would give them. It's found in Deuteronomy uh, 30, verse 3. He made a covenant that one day after all the troubles that happened, he would bring them back. They, most scholars refer that, to that as the Palestinian covenant. He made a covenant with David, call that the Davidic covenant. And finally, this, the new covenant. For our purposes this morning, we're going to emphasize or focus on two. The Mosaic, or his covenant with Moses, or through Moses, the covenant of the law, and this covenant, the new covenant. So we would like to jump into kind of a, a comparison, if you will, or more appropriately focus uh, today's message is called the unparalleled benefits of the new covenant. Because the benefits truly are unparalleled. If you set the benefits of this new covenant that the writer to the Hebrews is, is going to explain to his reading audience and therefore the Spirit of God is going to explain to us. If we compare those or set those benefits next to what the old covenant brought into being, we as well, I'm sure, will walk away, hopefully, with the understanding that they're unparalleled. And so I have, reading through it and preparing for this morning, come up with uh, what I would call six unparalleled benefits of the new covenant. And the first one, of course, is there in the text, which we read in verse 6, uh, where it says that Jesus has become the mediator of a 
better covenant, which was established on better promises. The word better there, if you're taking note this morning, is more accurately more excellent. So it's not as though the old covenant was bad. It's that the new covenant is more excellent than the old. The old covenant, a reference to the Mosaic covenant, a reference to the law of Moses by which every Hebrew lived their life under and every Hebrew's approach to a relationship with God came through the the covenant of the law or the Mosaic covenant. Now, for this author to insert to a Hebrew of his day, he was dealing with a, a generational belief that went back decades and multiple generations, thousands of years, that now there's something more excellent. The Apostle Paul addressed the fear that the Jew or the Hebrew had about doing away with the law, the law of Moses, and trying to just embrace now the new covenant. In Romans 3.31, Paul said it this way, do we make void the law through faith? And his answer was, Absolutely not. Not at all. No. Actually, in the New Covenant, we establish the law. And the author will move on to further explain why this New Covenant is more excellent, why it is better, why it is established on better promises. But the first unparalleled benefit is that it is more excellent than the Mosaic Covenant, or the Old Covenant. The second unparalleled benefit we find this morning comes to us in the following verses. I want to point your attention to verse 7, and we'll read through verse 9. Verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of, uh, and led them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, And I disregarded them, says the Lord. So we come to this second comparison. Under the old covenant that uh, God had made with their forefathers, that binding agreement for a purpose and an action, we find that the Lord took them out of the land of Egypt, but he, he... called Moses to lead them out. And so the eye of the God follower, if you will, the eye of the one in transition from bondage to freedom, their eye was to always be on the man, Moses. And under that first 
covenant, that old covenant, the eye of the God seeker was always seeking to follow a man. I do find it interesting that the Lord says right there that I led them out by by their hand, grabbed their hand and led them. In other words, there was this physical, uh, the sense of a, of a physical leading. You can't lead yourself, so I'm going to walk you this way. If you've ever had a young boy or a girl and their first uh, interaction with crossing a street, what do we do as parents? We stop at the corner. We don't have many corners here in Valley Springs, but we stop at the corner. We grab their hand. We instruct them to look both ways. And we walk with them across the street. And that's the sense in which God is saying, under that old covenant, that's how I needed to bring you along with all the while your eyes would be on this man, Moses. And yet, in this more excellent covenant, the eyes of the God seeker, the God follower, the one who wants to endeavor to walk with God, Their eyes are not on a man. Their eyes are on the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. And the the leading or the walking isn't so much him walking, holding our hand, but it is a walk by faith. Jesus said in Mark 4, 19, he said, follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. I'll change what's important in your life. I will change the way in you endeavor to move forward in your, in your workplaces, in your home. I'll change what you are most interested in because I will work in your heart to give you a heart that wants to see others to get to know me. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He told us in John 20, 29, he was talking to Thomas and he said, Thomas, you have seen me and believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet will believe. He was talking about you and I, those who would come all through history after his resurrection that would not physically see him, would not have physically walked with him, but by faith believe. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he said we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. If you're a Christian this morning, you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are walking forward in this life by faith, not by the things you see. It's by faith in Christ alone. So under the old covenant, their eyes were to be on a man and they needed the physical hand to lead them. Under the new, our eyes are on the Son of God and we're walking by faith in his promise and promises. A third unparalleled benefit comes to us now in verse 10. If you'll read it with me, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And by the way, the author here is, is repeating what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31. And so the Hebrew, hearing, reading, listening to what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, would have immediately went, 
Oh, this is that. This is what Jeremiah the prophet promised. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put, notice this, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The interesting comparison we have here starts with looking at what was the case under the the old covenant as it relates to his laws and where they were. Where were they? They were originally written on tablets of stone. You remember the story. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God writes on two tablets with the finger of God what we now have as we relate to the the Ten Commandments or the Ten Utterances. And Moses comes down from the mountain, his face aglow with the, the glory of the presence of God. And what does he find having come down the mountain, having left the people to themselves and left them alone? You know, the world has a saying, uh, might as well not go there. What happens is when we're left without someone to direct or when we choose to not allow ourselves to be directed and we're just left to ourselves, we often go astray. And when Moses came down from the mountain, he had found that the, the people, the, this precious nation that God had just delivered from the hand of the Egyptians had caused them to see the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, had brought them to this place where now God was going to speak to them. And Moses said, wait while I go hear from the Lord. He finds them rebellious, finds them worshiping an idol, golden calf, Involved in all kinds of illicit behavior. And he took those two original stones and he threw them down and they broke. God eventually rewrites the commands again, but once again they're on tablets of stone. And that to me speaks, or bespeaks, if you will, of... His laws were physical. His laws were um, critical. His laws were hard. His laws were legal. In order to have this relationship with me, you must do these physical, legal things. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the sacrifices within the Old Testament uh, system, the old covenant, it was a bloody system. There had to be an animal brought. You could not be in right relationship unless there was the proper sacrifice made. And as Paul said, we don't make void the law, but we establish it. It was tablets of stone in this new covenant. 
Isn't it beautiful what, what God promised? He said, now I'm going to take them off the tablets of stone. I'm going to take their harshness away. I'm going to take their legality away. You're no longer going to walk by the jot and the tittle of do this and do that and you'll be right with, with me. He says, I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to put my law in your mind. And when, the, when his laws or his directives, if you will, his counsel, his hopes and desires, the framework with, within which he gives mankind to live, when... Listen, when those things are in our minds and in our hearts, then we don't, it's, it's freeing. Paul speaks about this kind of approach that the Spirit of God, active in the life of the believer, so that God's word, his laws, God's word is in our mind and in our hearts. Talked about it, 2 Corinthians 3.6, he said that he has been made a sufficient minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. See, that's what this new covenant being promised here and now active at the time of the writing of the writer to the Hebrews. It's the, the spirit that gives life to God's law and his word. Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 8 verse 2, he said, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Under this new covenant, a God-seeker, a God-follower, would now have uh, God's loving law, his loving word written on his heart and in his mind, her heart and her mind, and be able to live her life as the Spirit of God speaks through those love letters to bring direction, to bring comfort, to bring Joy, promise, and hope instead of having to run to the tablet of the stone. Beautiful promise that this new covenant would now lift God's word from uh, the, the stone or the scrolls. They, you know, remember they used to carry, the Hebrews would carry the scrolls of all the books of the old, what we know to be the Old Testament. Carry them everywhere they went. And they would have to go find those places and talk to the rabbi and eventually rabbinical teaching overtook even what the scroll said and it was always go to the scroll to see what it says to see what it says and God says you know what a time's coming where I'm just going to write my word on their mind and on their heart how by the spirit of God 
a fifth benefit, certainly, fourth benefit actually, uh, that being the third, this being the fourth benefit, uh, comes to us in verse 11. Notice he says, And none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now this is a powerful uh, promise of what the new covenant was going to bring, especially when we set it alongside what was happening under the old covenant at the time of the writing. Notice that in there again, there's a promise here that the, the new covenant is going to go to all peoples. For none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all. Here was the, the opening of the door, if you would, to the entire populace within the world. To the entire Gentile world. You see, under the Old Covenant and under Judaism, it was somewhat uh, exclusive. In other words, it was designed that the, the Jew, the Hebrew, would take the light of the, the knowledge of God in the Old Testament throughout the world to help all peoples know who the one true God is and therefore an expectation was made that they would enter into the worship of that one true God through the door of Judaism. But that would mean they would have to, you know, cross over or proselyte would be the word. And so it was in that way exclusive. The problem, although that was God's um, design and and. We have many records in the Old Testament of, of non-Jewish societies coming genuinely to worship uh, the one true God, Jehovah God, through the door of Judaism. But now fast forward to the time of Christ and his resurrection. At that time, there was a problem. The Hebrew that were carrying the message that there's a one true God to be worshipped often did not have a relationship with the messenger. And how do I say that? Of course, we know uh, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23, He said, Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay tithe of mint and anise and of cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In fact, there were many within the system of the old covenant that were ready to tell somebody about the message of the one true God, but not walking in relationship with the messenger himself. You might say, well, how could they do that? And I would respond by saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, is there not a similar comparison today where someone might, you know, say they're a Christian but not be walking in the ways that the Lord would have them to walk. The, 
They might be able to give you hints of the message, but not be in intimate relationship with the messenger. I stressed it last week, but I'll stress it again this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Are you in relationship with the messenger? Because the message is of no value unless you, by reason of fact of that relationship, can express his love, his mercy, his grace to everyone that crosses your path. And the promise in this prophetic utterance of the new covenant is that you're not going to go start telling your neighbor about the one true God or your brother about the one true God because everyone's just going to have the opportunity to know me by reason of the cross of Calvary and my efficient blood on that cross. Powerful. First John 2, 3, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. First John 2, 5, But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. I remember years ago I was counseling with uh, a, a couple that wasn't related to this church at all. And a uh, husband and wife, and they were, you know, having some problems. And I remember after much discussion looking at the husband and, and saying, Do you want this marriage? to flourish and continue. And as I looked him in the eye, he looked at me. He said yes. But there was a hesitation. However long, you know, I don't know how long it was. Was it a one second? Was it three seconds? Was it five? There was a hesitation. I had to think about it. And they said, yes. And I made point at that period of time to help that individual, help them both recognize that there's danger in that amount of hesitation. There's, that's troubled water right there. And so I, I bring that to you this morning as an illustration that if someone says to you, do you know Christ intimately. Should there be hesitation? Should there be a nanosecond of... Uh, I think it's a yes, no question. Go ahead, so you can say amen. I think it's a yes, no question. I think if... if Someone approaches you that is a, a loving brother or sister and, and says to you, hey, what's God doing in your life today? Do you, do you know Christ intimately? The, it shouldn't be the deer in the headlight like, look, unless, unless there is a hesitation of what you are doing with Jesus Christ himself. And 
if there is a hesitation, the, the good news in that is to recognize it. It's not a condemning thing at all. It's, it's, a, it's a good recognition to realize, wait a minute, maybe I need to scroll things back a bit and take a healthy look again at my walk with you, Lord. How are we doing? So this new covenant, know the messenger, not just the message. A fifth benefit, and we'll wind it up here, we have two more. A fifth benefit comes to us in verse 12 and is so powerful. Verse 12, he says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness unrighteousness says and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more it's a two-parter the fifth benefit comes to me comes to us in the first half of this verse for I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses what we see here is a recognition that there was an unrighteousness within the people, within mankind, that under the old covenant could only be dealt with by way of uh, a consequence. There was a consequence for the unrighteousnesses in their lives. And that consequence was dealt with and atoned for by way of a sacrifice. Uh, let me rephrase it. A worshiper longs to be close with God, realizes there's a, a sin in their life that has now separated them from an intimate closeness with God, and so they know they must go, therefore, to either the temple, Moses' day, the tabernacle, to the priest. They must bring the proper sacrifice. They must offer it to the priest. The priest then therefore must offer that sacrifice. The blood of that sacrificial animal would then atone for that sin for their life and they could then therefore be, quote, re restored to a right relationship with God and they would turn and walk away from the temple, the priest, the tabernacle, whatever. And, you know, home they would go. But each time there was a recognition of a failure, a moral wrong, an inappropriate act in the eyes of God, it would mean they have to turn about face and go and deal with that again. There would be stretches of time before that individual uh, could have that sense of being rightly restored in his or her relationship with God again. There was the need to go get something, bring something, walk, go somewhere, do something under the old covenant. But here under this new covenant, notice what the promises is. This is chalkboard clean. I've decided what did we say it was. I love this.
a binding agreement, oftentimes a written agreement, and a promise, usually under seal, Webster's Dictionary of Covenant, between two parties. So what God is saying here, under this new covenant that I will give, that is now active at the time that the Hebrew writer is writing, and is now active today within the concept of the New Testament church, under this new covenant, I've just decided I'm going to be merciful to their unrighteousnesses. You can shout hallelujah. There's a promise in the Bible that says his mercies are new every morning. That means my shortcomings of yesterday, my failures of the hour ago, the places in which I misstepped, God says, no, I'm not putting aside growth or uh, learning and maturing. But God says, I'm, I'm going to be merciful. And he says to you and me this morning, he says, I've chosen to be merciful to you in every unrighteousness that you possess. Last, but certainly not least, The latter portion of verse 12, he says, sixth benefit, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is a big one. This is huge. And the way we understand its depth and its value is by one simple glance at what took place under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, sin was covered, atoned for. In other words, the sin still existed, but the, the blood would cover it. Uh, kofar in the Old Testament. It would mean that that sin was covered so that the worshiper could then therefore still stand in a right relationship with God. Under this new covenant, what do we see? God says, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just going to cover it. I'm going to Remove my remembrance of it. Their sin and their lawless deed, I won't remember anymore. Other verses that tell us that uh, he, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In other words, when, if you are a Christian this morning, when you're brought to the remembrance of the, the vile and hopeless ways in which you have sinned before God. And I know that's, that kind of language isn't used very often much more in churches even sometimes. But God is no respecter of person and he is no respecter of sin. A lie in the, in the mouth and in the heart of a Christian is the same as adultery or murder 
in the mind and the heart of God. He's not a respecter of sin. One sin is not worse than another. It's all sin. And we're told in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we're also told in the gospel that Christ, on that cross, took the penalty for every sin that mankind would ever commit, both past, present, and future. And so if something is bringing your sin or my sin to my, your remembrances, God's, that's not the Lord bringing it up before you so you can feel condemned about it. If you've brought it to the cross and you've asked God to forgive you of it, God says, forgiven and forgotten. Wow. That's freedom. That's beautiful. I can walk in that because what that does is it sets me free from yesterday and from the hour behind me and, and allows me to now go forward in grace and mercy. The last verse of this, and we conclude. She says, and in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Under the old, nothing perfect. Under the new, more excellent. Under the old, the following of a man. Under the new, the following the Son of God. Under the old, on tablets of stone. Under the new, written on our mind and our heart. Under the old, might know what the message says, but not know the messenger. Under the new, everyone is given the opportunity to know him. Under the old, unrighteous requirements always leading to more unrighteous requirements under the new, a declaration of God's mercy. Under the old, sin only covered. Under the new, sin forgotten forever. Unparalleled benefits of the new covenant. Worthy of thinking on and certainly worthy of living by. Are you living in the new covenant? Have you committed your life to Christ? If you haven't today, he's speaking to your heart. If you're watching at home and you're sensing that this is that time, don't let it pass. The Lord is saying, come unto me. I will make all things new. And you can do that as well. Will you join me as we close with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your, your word. This tremendous book of the book of Hebrews, the faithfulness of the writer to the Hebrews to explain in detail, Lord, the value 
of this new covenant of which, Lord, you said in that night that you were with your disciples, you said it's a new covenant in your blood. Lord, this hour we stand uh, amazed at your mercy and your grace and that you would offer this to each and every one who would embrace what you have done on the cross 2,000 years ago. Still changing lives today and reconciling us to your Father. Lord, if there are any here this morning that know you not, would you speak to them? Would you remind them of your love? And for us who have given our lives, Lord, at another time and are reminded of the value of this new covenant of which we live, we say thank you. We need you. We want you. We desire to live our lives in such a way that blesses you. So, Lord, have your way. In us we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said.